to you as well this morning. All right, Matthew chapter 12 is where we'll be as we study the Word of God together. All right, Matthew chapter 12. And as many of you know, we are looking at the miracles of Christ as we find them in the gospel records. And I've been trying to go in order as we find them, but I think I got out of order on this one. I apologize about that, but hey, we got to look at it anyway. I don't want to skip them over. But we're trying to look at them in order. But as we come to them, just be reminded once again, as I want to remind you every single time we come to them, be reminded of one of the main purposes behind the miracles of Christ. Be reminded that one of the main purposes is not just for some kind of show, though that's what King Herod wanted to see. He wanted to see a show from from the Lord Jesus in in Luke chapter 23. But that's not what they're there for. No doubt they were jaw-dropping, but that's not what they're there for. It's not even there to draw a following, though many people, thousands of people followed the Lord Jesus because of his mighty miracles, but that wasn't the main purpose. Uh, The main purpose wasn't even just to show his mighty power, though each and every one of them does that for sure. And we know as we read them and study them, there's nothing too hard for the Lord. That with God, all things are possible. It wasn't just to help people, though Jesus helped thousands of individuals as we look at the miracles of Christ. He helped thousands, but that was not the main purpose behind them. Rather, I believe as I studied the miracles of Christ, the main purpose behind them would be this, to prove and to show just who Jesus Christ is, that He is the Son of God, that He is the Messiah, that He is Christ, that He is, listen, that He is this, God come in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. I believe they prove that Jesus is the Almighty and this is very well the, the main purpose, the big picture behind every single miracle we read in the gospel records. Here's what John had to say about the miracles of Christ. In John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. These signs, these miracles, these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So as you study these miracles, listen, they are to prove and to show that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And understanding this fact and knowing this truth should cause you and I to come to Jesus Christ as our Savior so we can have life through his name. So again, allow these miracles to bring you to Christ. All right? So that's the main purpose, I believe, behind the mighty miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at another one. Another one this morning will be in Matthew chapter 12. We'll read verses 22 through 30 in just, in just a moment, all right? So Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 through 30. And let's jump right into our text this morning. Look at it with me, all right? Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb. And he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, They said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? That's pretty good logic, wouldn't you say? Anyway. Verse 27, and if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. 
Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house. He that is not with me is against me and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Father, again, we thank you for another day. An opportunity we have to gather this morning together to once again study and read and preach the word of God. And I pray in this moment you would uh, take away all distractions from our minds from this past week and even the week to come, the things we got to get done, the things we failed to do, whatever it may be. Lord, help us to put away all distractions and dive into the Word of God and continue to grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ this morning. Do a work in our hearts, we ask, for the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, from this portion of Scripture in this text, I'd like to know a few things, notice a few things. The first one is this. Number one, consider this. Consider the assessment of the people, all right? The assessment of the people in verses 22 through 20, 23. Look at it with me again. After seeing the miracle of the, uh, the, the man who was possessed with the devil, uh, after seeing that miracle, seeing him be able, to, be able to see, be able to speak, here's what they said, verse 23. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? Now, no doubt this would have been an absolute amazing miracle to be a part of, as, of course, all of them would be. But this would have been amazing to see. To see a man who, no doubt, many people here knew. Maybe they'd seen him around. Maybe they'd seen him around as a beggar on the street. Because during this day and time, as a blind man or a deaf man or a lame man or whatever it may be, uh, they were pretty much uh, just... uh, destitute to a life of begging, all right? That's pretty much what they were bound to be. But uh, so no doubt they've probably seen him around. Many seen him and knew of him. But to see a man who at one time was blind, now able to perfectly see, a man who at one time could not speak at all, now able to talk very clearly, to see a man who was at one time possessed with a devil to be now normal, whatever normal is, right? But now normal, right? But to see, to see that, this would have been absolutely amazing. And that's why the folks were so even amazed. In verse 23, it says that all the people were amazed. Now, this word here, amazed, it means to be astonished. It means to be astounded. I like this, this definition. It means to be thrown out of position. So here's what I picture in my mind, all right, as I read this miracle. As these people saw what Jesus did to this blind man and dumb man, when they saw the miracle, here's what they did. You ready? Oh, good night. Did you see that? Oh, my goodness. They were thrown backwards, right? They were absolutely shocked out of their minds at what Jesus did. They were amazed. They were amazed here. The people saw this miracle were absolutely in, in shock. But after they saw that, here's what they said. Look at it again in verse 23. And all the people were amazed and said, here it is. Highlight this, underline it, circle it. Do something. Is not this the son of David? They're absolutely in shock and said, is not this the son of David? Now, this is a very significant title, especially for the Jewish mind and the Jewish people. And for the people to make this kind of assessment, that means to me at least these individuals must have had some kind of Old Testament Bible knowledge. They must have had some kind of knowledge of, of the Scripture. And you may be thinking, well, why do, you, why do you think that, preacher? Well, be reminded it's not the first time we've seen this statement made about the Lord Jesus Christ. We have seen this statement made. I think there's six miracles. We've got another one to look at. But six total miracles where people around them, around Jesus, said this statement. 
or even at least asked the question, is not this the son of David? They've made this phrase or statement towards the son, the son of God. But why is this so significant? What's so significant about this, about this title or about this phrase given to the Lord Jesus? We'll be reminded again in the Old Testament. God made a covenant with David that his throne would be established forever. God made that covenant through his prophet Nathan to David. You can find that in 2 Samuel chapter number 7, verses 8 through 16. You can read that for yourself. Maybe we'll put that in the margin of your Bible. But in the end of that, end of that passage of Scripture in 2 Samuel, it says this, And thy house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. And guess who knew this promise? Guess who was awaiting this promise to be fulfilled? Listen, it'd be the Jews. The Jews were waiting for this. They were been waiting for the king. They've been waiting for God to fulfill this promise of Scripture. And it's caused the Jewish people to long and to see David's greater son, the one who would rule forever. So the Jews understand they were longing and yearning for their ruler, the king, to come. But how would they know he has come? How would they know that? Well, remember again, what was it that John the Baptist was told by Jesus himself when John began to doubt if Jesus was actually the Christ? If he really was the Messiah that had come, especially as John was in prison, this when he began to doubt that. But we'll be reminded what Jesus told him, Matthew chapter 11, verse 2 through 6. Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Again, he was doubting, doubting Jesus. But Jesus answered and said unto him, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. And here's what they heard and said. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. It's very encouraging to me on a side note to know what settled the doubts of John the Baptist. You know what it was? He was in prison doubting if this is really Jesus. But do you know what settled his doubts and what that Jesus gave to him? It was this. Jesus gave him the word of God. He gave him Old Testament scriptures. And this is what settled his doubts. And I want to encourage you this morning. Let the word of God settle your doubts. Understand the word of God is settled forever in heaven. Therefore, let it, let it settle your heart today. All right? Let God's word settle it all for you. But that's what happened for John the Baptist. It was God's word that settled it for him. But the verses that Jesus quoted to John the Baptist were these, all right? And by the way, I'm going somewhere. Stay with me. Isaiah 35, verse 5, 4 through 6. The Bible says this. Isaiah 35, 4 through 6. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with recompense. He will come and save you. And here's how you know. Here's how you will know he is here. Here's how you know he will come. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as in the heart and the tongue of the dumb sing. Again, what was wrong with this man here in this miracle? He was blind and dumb, possessed with the devil. But what did Jesus do for this man? Well, he gave him sight and loosed his tongue. So in doing this, Jesus is proving who he is. From Isaiah 35, of course, that God has come. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is here. And again, it may help you to know this really quickly. 
that surrounding this miracle were other folks too, not just multitudes, but people of great importance during this day, and especially in this area known as we know as the Pharisees. They were here. And these Pharisees should have known this portion of Scripture better than any other. Therefore, the Pharisees knew who Jesus was by the miracle that he performed even in this text. They should have known. This is the king. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. This is the Son of God. They should have been the very first ones to make this assessment. But they didn't. But there are others who did. Others with some form of knowledge of the Bible and Old Testament scriptures. And they said, is not this the son of David? Is not this the king? Is not this the Messiah, the God who is going to come to save us? Is this not him? They're making a very strong assessment. I want you to know, my friends, yes, it is him. This is him that has come to save people. This is the Savior. This is the king. This is Emmanuel, God, in the flesh. This is him. It's him. The Pharisees should have made that assessment, but they didn't. Instead, they did this, number two. The Pharisees made an accusation. Look at verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth cast out devils by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read this accusation, I find it very, very frustrating and, yes, even very dangerous because what they're doing here is they're accusing Lord Jesus of being possessed by Satan himself. That's what they're saying. That's what they're saying here. And this is a very ridiculous uh, statement, accusation on so many levels. It's not even a logical one, let alone a biblical one, of course. But even Jesus points that out in a moment, which we'll get to. But it's such a ridiculous thing. But what causes someone to make an accusation like this? Why would the Pharisees make this form of accusation, accusation against the Lord Jesus? Well, understand, they hated him, all right? And I'm not talking about just a strong dislike. I'm talking about hated the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know this to be no secret, especially as we read the New Testament and the Gospel records. We understand they hated Jesus, and they've hated him for, for some time, but why? Why did they start hating the Lord Jesus? Well, he did a couple things. Number one, he dis, disrupted their traditions, all right? I understand the Pharisees held their traditions as high, if not in some instances, higher than even the Word of God itself. But when Jesus came to town, he disrupted that mindset and disrupted their traditions. And this can be seen in many miracles and in many teachings. But you can see it even in Mark chapter number 3. Mark chapter 3, I'm going to read it to you and about this miracle. We've, we've looked at this one before. But Mark chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, it says this. And he entered again into the synagogue. And there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they, that's the Pharisees, they watched him. Whether he would heal on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him, again, because their tradition, uh, in their tradition, if you didn't do anything on the Sabbath, not even help somebody. No, not even do that. But here's what, here's what the Bible says. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? But they held their peace. Jesus, referring back to the Scripture, but they didn't want to refer to Scripture because they were referring to their tradition. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. 
He stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with Herodians against him. Here it is, how they might destroy him. Understand, he disrupted their traditions, therefore they sought to destroy him. All right, not only that, but here's the big one. Here's the real reason they went about to destroy him and have him killed and have him get rid of. They hated him because of his declaration. What do you mean by that? Understand Jesus did not hide who he was from these guys. He let it be clearly known who he was and who he is. He did that through the miracles, but he did it through his preaching and teaching as well. Especially one day when he said this in John chapter 8, verse 52 through 59, the Bible says this. Then said the Jews unto him, now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and thou sayest, if a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets are dead. Whom makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honoreth me, of whom you say that he is your God, yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say, I know him not, I should be a liar like unto you, but I know him and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, that word verily, verily means truly, truly. This is as plain as I can get it for you right here, fellas. Perk up and listen. Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> He laid it out there, folks. He just plainly told them who he was. And here's how they responded. Then took they up stones to cast at him, because Jesus. but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Understand, in this text, when Jesus used this title of I Am, he was using a title that was reserved for Jehovah God in the Old Testament. So you know what he was doing here in the New Testament? Here's what he was doing. He used it in reference for himself, claiming that he is God, that he is the I Am. Am. He declared it before them all, just who he is. But guess what? They hated him for that. They despised him. They would soon, rather the crowds, thunder the chant of crucify him. They hated him. They hated him. This is why they're making this false accusation. They hated him. Not because of the good deeds that he did. They didn't hate him for that. They didn't hate him for his kindness and compassion. Rather, they hated him for the truth that he spoke. They hated him because he spoke the truth to them. By the way, he is the truth. John, John chapter 14, verse 6. But they hated him for it. And so they would crucify him for that. Which, by the way, was all part of God's redemptive plan for the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, to give his life a ransom for many. To lay down his life for you and for me. To shed his precious blood for the sins of the world. To be the spotless, uh, sinless sacrifice so that we can have salvation through Jesus Christ and him alone. We have access to God because of all what Jesus did. Romans chapter 5 verse 1, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But understand, this accusation was made because they absolutely hated him and therefore because they hated him they're always trying to find a way to discredit him discredit his preaching to defame his character in order to get folks to do this to doubt who he really is that's why they said this in front of the multitudes that's why they said this even after this amazing miracle where people said but, but wait 
Is not this the son of David? And they answered and said, no, this is the son of Beelzebub. That's so ridiculous. But that's their accusation because they hated Jesus Christ. All right. So we see the assessment of the people, the accusation of the Pharisees. And then thirdly, I want to see this. I want to see the answer that Jesus gives them. I want to see the answer. Now, as Jesus answers these false accusations, all right, from the Pharisees, he does so with questions. Now, why would Jesus answer their question with a question? Here's why. I believe questions stir up our conscience. They cause you and I to do this. They cause us to stop and to, this is a, I know this is a bad word, think, all right? But that's what they do. Questions cause us to stop and to think. Let me ask you a question. When you were a kid, I'm asking you adults, when you were a kid and you got into trouble, did your parents ever ask you questions such as these, such as this? This may or may not have happened in our house, all right? Allegedly, this happened down the road. All right, anyway, such as something like this. As a kid, they decided to draw you a beautiful picture on your brand new couch with a Sharpie. And as you are mesmerized by this beautiful picture on your brand new couch with a Sharpie, you say, what were you thinking? <laughs> Anybody else do something like that, right? What were you thinking? And then, of course, as a child, you, they would come up with some kind of excuse, really, which is a lie, to try to cover up their wrongdoing, all right? And as they try to do that, you ask this question, well, why in the world would you do that? Why would you do that? And then he may give you that excuse, and you, then, then you, you answer that question with this. Well, do you think I'm stupid or something? Now, kids in this room, never under any circumstance do you ever answer that question of do you think I'm stupid or something in the affirmative, ever. All right. It's always, no, ma'am. No, sir. Not at all. <laughs> you never answer that question. I'm trying to save your life here, kids, okay? But anyway, never answer that question with the affirmative. But we answer these, ask these questions why. We want to get them to think, but they did. We ask those questions, what were you thinking? Why would you do this? Why would you think this is a beautiful thing to do? Why? We want them to think and cause them to understand the error of, of, their, of their way. But questions are good. And Jesus is asking questions to get these guys to, to think. I like what one, one preacher said. Pastor Jim Ogle told me this one day. He said, questions stir the conscience, but accusations harden the will. So understand, questions are good. They're good. But notice his questions. Look at verse 25. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan... He's divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Well, that's a good question too. So he answers his, his questions with questions. And with his questions to their accusation, he, he asked this type of question. He, he basically made this statement rather, that their question was very much illogical. It was not a logical question for them to ask. And here's what he says. In verse 26, or 25, uh, at the end of it, I'm sorry, verse 26, at the end of it. How shall then his kingdom stand? Asking about if Satan cast out Satan. Because understand, this makes no logical sense for them to ask this question to Jesus. 
Now, Jesus was not denying that the devil didn't have a power, even a kingdom. Jesus knows that. Satan has a kingdom. The Bible talks about that. He's the God of this world, the God of this age, if you will. In John chapter 12, verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So understand Jesus knows, he knows that uh, there's a, Satan has a kingdom, all right? But Jesus looks at these Pharisees and asks a very logical question. Why would Satan fight against himself? Why would the devil oppose himself? Why would he divide his kingdom? Why would he destroy his own house? This makes no sense at all. This statement that they made about Jesus is completely illogical, completely. And then it was this. It was very impractical as well. Look at verse 27. And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. Understand, it would seem at this moment, as I read this verse and other portions of Scripture in the, in the Bible, it would seem that there, at this time there somehow, somewhere, Jewish exorcists, all right? Meaning there were some Jews who had some power to cast out demons. And again, Jesus recognized this fact from this verse. But you can see that as well in Acts chapter 19, verse 13 through 16. About the vagabond Jews, exorcists is what they were called there. So it seemed that these Pharisees knew of other Jewish people who could cast out devils. All right. So for the Pharisees to say that Jesus, who was Jewish by the way, was casting out demons by the devil himself, they would have to give an answer to the other Jewish leaders who had the power to cast out demons as well. And if the Pharisees stuck to the accusation, then they would have to agree that their own brothers, all right, were casting out devils by the devil himself, therefore making themselves in a pact or a league with the devil. Understand, this is a very impractical accusation on their part. And they would never agree to that statement that they were in a league with the devil. They wouldn't do that. So Jesus answers them, with questions, and lets it be completely known who he is yet again. He's not Beelzebub. He's not doing this through the power of Satan. It's ridiculous. So lastly, he does this, though. Jesus gives an admonition. I want you to see verse 28. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. Luke records it this way, same miracle. In Luke chapter 11, verse 20. But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. Understand Jesus was letting it be known by performing this miracle that the kingdom of God has come. He's letting them know that the kingdom of God has infiltrated the kingdom of of the world, the devil's kingdom, if you will. He has he he let it be known that God has come. He's letting it be known that a greater power is here, a greater than Beelzebub, all right, is here. He was letting them know the king has come. And since he has come, he makes this admonition. Look, look at it with me, verse 30. He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me Scattereth abroad. Basically, here's what he's doing. 
He's made it known. The kingdom of God has come. He's not doing this by the power of the devil. No, he's greater than the devil because he's God. And the kingdom of God has come. So he's looking at these Pharisees and everybody else says, well, and he's basically doing this. He is saying, choose a side. Choose a side. Which side will you stand on? Look at it again, verse 30. He that is not with me is against me. He that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Choose a side. Choose a side. Which kingdom are you going to side with? Which one are you going to stand with? Are you going to stand with light or darkness? Stand with the devil or with Jesus, good or evil, with God or against him. Listen, choose a side. Because understand, folks, there can be no compromise on this issue. There is no riding of fence on this issue. We're either going to go with God or against him, with Jesus or against him. No riding the fence whatsoever. Pick a side. And that's what he's trying to tell these individuals. Pick a side. But the side you should pick is the kingdom of God's side. Jesus' side. Because God has come. This miracle has proves it again. Jesus' statements prove it yet again and again and again. Just who he is. Pick a side. Pick a side. So the ball was in the court of the people and really even the Pharisees as well to make this decision to accept him or to reject him and the same goes for us today choose a side accept the Lord or reject the Lord go to his side or not accept his sacrifice on the cross his burial and resurrection for you and for me accept him as savior or reject him as Savior. And by the way, if you reject Him as your Savior, you are choosing to find your own way for salvation. And here's what the Bible says about that in Proverbs 16, 25. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You know, later on in the scripture here, next couple of verses, it talks about the unpardonable sin. And many people get a little confused about that. But I believe in the context of this scripture that unpardonable sin if you will is the final rejection of, of the Lord Jesus you reject him over and over and over and over and over again listen that's something you can't forgive when it comes time for judgment day because you've rejected him you've rejected the Holy Spirit working in your heart and life you've rejected him don't reject him any longer in the context again he's talking to and speaking to Pharisees who have rejected him over and over and over and over even after all the signs and miracles he has done, even after all the teaching and preaching he's done, they're still continuing to reject and reject and reject. Folks, don't reject him any longer. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, listen, trust him today. Don't reject him any longer. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. 